Um, we're going to, the next couple weeks, be in the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to pull that up or turn there. I would invite you to join me over these next few weeks in your own time of studying the Bible to start around Luke chapter 9 and just kind of take a slow, thorough read of the next seven or eight chapters. It's a collection of a type of Middle Eastern Palestinian teaching method called parables. And while this morning I won't spend a lot of time teaching on what a parable is and ways to interpret it and how they were used, I will try to fold some of that into the actual teaching this morning. But I just felt led, I was going to preach in a different direction over these couple weeks, but I really felt led to camp out here for just a few weeks and each week take a look at one of these masterful Middle Eastern parables that Jesus used often in his teaching to, or, or spontaneously in conversations with people to get across a point in a way that was both powerful and memorable. Sometimes Jesus gave people straight up direct answers. And then other times he gave them a direct answer in the form of a parable or a proverb or a story. So today we're going to begin in Luke chapter 9. Verses 57 through 62, uh, the fox, the funeral, and the field. And this passage is often excluded from the greater list of parables in Luke. And it's, and it's a shame because it really shouldn't be. Um, it does not fit the pattern of some of Jesus' parables, which were more like um, extended stories. They're actually, in this story that Luke records, it's, it's a story within a historical account. Not, not all parables, in fact, we believe that all the parables Jesus told weren't necessarily meant to convey history to us. They were fictitious, illustrative stories. But sometimes Jesus told a story in the middle of an actual historic event that happened. So what we see here in these five verses is three interactions Jesus has with three uh, would-be applicants for discipleship. Three men are expressing a willingness or an interest to join up with Jesus, to sign on, to become part of his movement. And he has an interaction with these three men. And in two of the three interactions, he replies to them in a form that every ancient listener, every Palestinian, every Middle Easterner would recognize are proverbs or parabolic speech. And so we're going to treat them like they're parables. Uh, the first guy comes to Jesus, and he's a volunteer, and he volunteers to follow Jesus, and Jesus responds to him with a parable using uh, imagery taken from nature, the outdoors. The next guy is a recruit. He doesn't initially volunteer. Jesus recruits him. He says, you come and follow me, and then that recruit responds to Jesus with a willingness but with a condition attached. And Jesus does not give him a parable. He gives him a direct answer using uh, imagery from their culture and their cultural customs. Then the third person he talks to is another volunteer. This volunteer uh, expresses a willingness to follow Jesus but also has a condition. And Jesus tells that one a parable not using nature but using farming and agriculture. So we have three interactions, a volunteer, a recruit, and a volunteer. The first one has no conditions. 
Number two and number three have conditions. Number one and number three get a parable. The second one gets a direct answer. And they're all related to the answering one question. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? So it's a very basic interaction. But it's a very foundational basic question. So we're going to consider these three conversations not individually but as a unit. Let me read to you this morning from Luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62. If, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can take out the handout that's in the bulletin. The text is printed on the front. And just some, some statements that would be good for you to consider and remember are on the back that you can fill in as we go. And I'll also let you know how close you are to getting pulled pork. So it kind of lets you keep a score as we go along this morning. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests. But the son of man has no place even to lay his head. Jesus said to another person, come, follow me. That man agreed, but he said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go out and preach about the kingdom of God. And then the third one. Another one said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. May God add his blessing and our understanding to the reading of his word this morning. If Jesus was a pastor, I don't think his church would have grown very fast. Because Jesus, many times, he behaves and conducts himself in a way that no pastor concerned about church growth would conduct themselves. In fact, many times he conducts himself in a way and an attitude opposite of most modern pastors. When people come to Echo on a Sunday morning, the first thing you see when you walk through that door is the new here booth. And it's lined with gifts. And today we'll have a second new here booth back by the Mission Barbecue food. When people come to our church and say, we want to join up, we want to buy in, we want to get on board with Echo Community Church, we want to put roots down here, we want to be part of the church. We say, come on, we're so glad you're here. That's why we're here. Welcome, join up. And yet in Jesus' scenario here, <laughs> we have three people who say, I want to follow you. I will give up everything to join in, to buy in. I want to be part. And what does Jesus say? Stop, halt. You better really think about this first. Get back. He's harsh. He's cold. And what's so interesting, the more you read about Jesus, just when you think you've got him figured out, he goes and upsets everything you think you should assume about Jesus. In a situation where we would expect him to be really tender and warm and welcoming, he's harsh and he is short with people and he is a little bit stormy. It's fascinating to me studying how he interacts with different personalities throughout this passage and throughout the Gospels. He is so different from anything the human race has ever produced. He's always surprising us. He's tender when we think he should be harsh, and he's harsh when we expect him to be tender. You see, if you're the leader of a movement, we think of like, uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King. When you think of people who were, if you're the leader of a movement, in fact, if you're the leader of any kind of organization, you know what you're always trying to do? You're trying to attract more people to join up with you. You're trying to make your movement, your organization easy for people to want to get involved with. You want them to buy in. You want them to sign up. You want them to join up. 
And here is Jesus leading a movement. And he's doing the complete opposite. When people come to join up, he's saying, stop. Think about this. You might not fit in. This is not a good idea for you. People like you would not fit in here. What in the world is he doing? And why on earth would Jesus respond to people that way? Is that what you and I should expect when we come to Jesus and say, I'm willing to follow you? Should we expect the same response? Should we expect him to say to us, "Mm, you know what? You may not fit in here. This might not be a good move for you. Halt. Stop. And you constantly see Jesus. When we think he should be harsh, he's tender. Right? He runs into the pimps and the prostitutes, and you'd think he's going to be harsh. And what's he do? He sits down and he eats with them. He, you know, a woman caught in the act of adultery is brought to him. The lepers and the sick and the diseased come to him, and he demonstrates unparalleled tenderness when we think he would be a little bit harsh. And then on the other hand, when people like the religious people, and especially these aspiring applicants, these aspirants come to him and say, we want to follow you, and he's harsh. The only reason Jesus could possibly be responding this way is if these three men have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They have absolutely no idea what it really means to enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, if you read the passage carefully a few times, you'll see each of them were talking about following Jesus, joining a cause, following a man, and Jesus is talking to them about entering a kingdom. They're interested in following and joining up a cause, and he's saying this is not simply joining a cause. This is about entering a kingdom, crossing a border from one dominion into another. And what he's really getting at is these three people don't understand what it really means to follow Jesus, what it really means to enter the kingdom. So if you and I just take a few minutes this morning and we look at this story, I guarantee you this much, you and I will learn exactly what it means to follow Jesus. We'll learn exactly what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. So let's look at just three things this morning. Here's the big idea. Here's one of the things I think he's trying to drive home. Maybe not the main thing, but I had to pick one of four, so this is the one. Um, Unfit disciples say, I'm willing, but first. Fit disciples say, I'm willing, and I will. Unfit disciples say, I want to follow Jesus, but they always have a condition. But first. Or I want to follow Jesus as long as. I want to follow Jesus, and I will, if only he would just, or if he promises to always. And Jesus said that type of person doesn't understand what it means to move into the kingdom because you would never join a kingdom and dictate the terms to the king. They don't get it. They don't understand that it's actually joining a kingdom. They think it's just a cause or a club or an organization to join where they set a certain set of standards and they can customize which ones they want to do and in what order. Jesus is saying that people who really follow me, who bond to me in a way unlike no other, say, I understand. I'm willing to follow you, and I will. I will enter in. So let's look at three things. Uh, Applying these three exchanges between Jesus and some of his would-be followers. Number one, every would-be disciple, every aspiring disciple, must seriously consider what it costs to be a disciple. Must seriously consider the cost of discipleship. There have been books by the very same title, uh, Bonhoeffer, right? That wrote, that wrote the book, the, the Cost of Discipleship. So I am not even going to be able to scratch the surface and do diligence to that question or that statement. I just want to look at it um, in a way that's applicable this morning and concise and gets right, right to the heart of it. The first volunteer is really enthusiastic, isn't he? There's a person by the side of the road. 
Jesus comes by and what does he say? I'm willing to follow you and with no conditions. I'm willing to leave my whole life and follow you. He's drawn in. He could only possibly know a few things. He could know what Jesus teaches and what he observes. And what would he observe if he followed Jesus up to this point? He would have observed amazing teaching. Teaching like he had never heard before. Teaching that was rallying the masses. Teaches that was gathering people by the hundreds, by the thousands. He would have also seen lives being transformed in front of him. He would have seen broken people being healed, blind people seeing, lame people walking, lepers pronounced clean. He would have seen a man who shut down the religious, uh, the religious hardliners with his ability to reason and to talk. He would have sucked them in. Here's a person who keeps going around saying, everything around here is about to change. Things are going to change. And it's the thing that the Israelites, the Palestinians, they wanted to hear this. And here this young aspiring disciple says, I want to join that cause. I want to change the world. I want to be part of seeing lives transformed and changed. I want to, I'll leave everything and I'll join the cause. And Jesus, you would think if he was like us, would say, come on, brother. Come on, join the team. And that's not what he says. He responds in a way completely different from how you and I would probably respond if an enthusiastic person was drawn in, was just the vortex of what was going on at Echo was so strong and they were drawn into our, our ministry and say, I want to be part of changing a community. I want to be part of, of serving children. I, wanna be, I love that cause. I want to be part of it. Well, we'd probably be really quick to onboard you, but Jesus slows the whole process down. Why? It can only be because he discerns this guy's heart perfectly and he recognizes this guy has no idea the check that he's writing. And Jesus knew on the front end this guy's understanding of what following me really means is extremely shallow and naive. And if we don't stop right here, he's not going to make it. When he finds out that this is other than what he expects it to be, he'll leave. So a lot of people believe that Jesus slowed the process down here for one of two things to happen. For that guy to think about it seriously enough and reckon the cost of it and say, I can't pay it. Or think about the cost of what it really means and say, I'm willing to pay it and then bond to Jesus in a way that he wouldn't have if he just jumped on because it was a good ride to be on. It's very important to Jesus that you and I think about the first, what the first guy had to think about. Let me say it this way. The first guy here did not understand the hardness of the kingdom of God. Didn't understand how hard it was. The second two guys didn't understand how great it was. The first guy didn't understand what he'd need to give up to enter the kingdom of God. The second two guys didn't understand what they were going to get in the kingdom of God. The first guy had a wrong idea about what was, not, what was included. He thought some things were included in the kingdom of God that weren't. The second two guys had a, had a wrong idea about what was included. There are some things that were included in the kingdom of God that they think they're going to be missing out on. And Jesus is trying to, it's kind of two sides of the same coin in how he responds. This first person is what I would call an idealist. You know what an idealist is? An idealist is, they're not excited about commitment to Jesus. They're excited about commitment to commitment. They're excited about excitement. They're committed to commitment. Idealists say, if I just hop on with the right cause and I do the right things, it'll all work out and we'll change the world. If I just do A, B, C, D, and E, if I'm more environmentally conscious, if I'm more uh, conscious about natural resources, if I just do A, B, C, D, and E, if I just do these right steps, I'm going to follow it and I'm going to get involved with this movement and we're going to change the world. And what Jesus is saying is that idealists Although they've always been attractive to the message of the kingdom of God, idealists don't make good disciples. 
because they're missing out on part of how hard the kingdom really is. Because idealists tend to think that if I do A, B, and C in the kingdom of God, there's a reward on the other side of it waiting for me. And the truth of the matter, there is a reward in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God uses a different currency than the kingdom of the world. And idealists think if I just follow, if I join a church, if I say the salvation prayer, if I give my offering, things are going to happen. All my relationships are going to be repaired. I'm going to get regular promotions at work. Bills are never going to be an issue. I'm going to magically get out of debt. I'm going to live a life of wealth and status and ease. That's not the currency of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't promise us any of those things. Now, does that mean that everybody who joins the kingdom of God should be penniless and relationshipless and in the middle of suffering? Then some people who are doing well financially think that I missed something. No. But the truth of the matter is this. The kingdom of the world rewards us with things like wealth and status, prosperity. And God can give those things to us too. But those are temporary things. What Jesus is saying the kingdom of God rewards us with are eternal things. And he understands that what's going to happen for an idealist is an idealist is going to think, if I just hitch myself to the Jesus train here, and I get involved in this cause and this movement, I'm all of a sudden going to achieve a certain level of status and comfort. And I'm going to be able to relax and take it easy. I'm going to be moving up in the eyes of the world. And Jesus is saying, hold up. He's saying that's not, the kingdom of God is not just some set of ethical improvements you make. The kingdom of God is a kingdom you join. It's more like this. The kingdom of God is crossing a border. If you got in your car in Texas and you decided, I want to drive out of the kingdom of the United States into the kingdom of Canada. You get in your car in Texas and you drive north. And I don't know how many thousand miles it is. Don't know. Doesn't really matter for the illustration. But you drive and you drive and you drive. And you're stopping and staying in hotels and you're eating really healthy while you drive. Every Chick-fil-A except for Sunday. You're hitting them all extra pickles and all your sandwiches. And you're driving and you're spending money on gas and tolls. And you drive and you drive and you drive. And you come within 100 feet of the Canadian border. You get out of your car and you stand right there. And you can see the Canadian border is just 10 feet away. Despite all of your money, despite all of your time, despite all of the miles, despite all of your geographical improvement, you are still 100% outside of the kingdom of Canada. In Texas, you are 100% outside the kingdom of Canada. 100 feet away, 10 feet away, you are still 100% outside of the kingdom of Canada. Despite all of your improvement... That still doesn't mean that you're in the kingdom. You are not in the kingdom until you cross the border. And what Jesus is trying to show all of these three men and showing us this. Following him is not just about saying, I'm going to take off my jersey of this team and I'm going to get on the Jesus team and put on a jersey. I'm going to make some ethical improvements. I'm going to watch my language. I'm going to get involved in some good causes. I'm going to join a church. I'm going to do some volunteer work. I'm going to be generous with my money. That will move you within maybe 10 feet of the border. But you're not in the kingdom until you take that one step. You see, getting into the kingdom of heaven is not about taking a thousand steps. It's just about taking one. It's about taking one that crosses the border. And when you cross the border, you enter a new kingdom with a new king. And what is the kingdom of God that we're talking about? The kingdom of God is the power of the outside world that's coming into the world that we live to be able to heal this world that we live of all of its brokenness. That's what we're talking about. See, all these guys are talking about following a man, and he's talking about entering a kingdom, and they didn't get it. They thought it was just about signing up to follow a guy and, and working out all the logistics, saying it's not about just following me, it's about entering a kingdom. 
It's about letting that kingdom power coming into you and then being involved in spreading that power to other people. And the first guy didn't get it. The second guy didn't get it. The third guy didn't get it. But Jesus wanted to be very clear to this first guy. You do not understand the hardness of the kingdom. Do not think for one moment that if you follow me, you're going to get wealth and status and influential relationships in a life of ease and comfort. He says, entering the kingdom of God guarantees you none of those things. Here's what he's saying. Look at me. Uh, foxes have holes. Birds have, the better translation is roosts. Birds have nests. They have a place to rest. They have a home. They have comfort. I am the embodiment of the kingdom of God and I have none of those things. But yet, Jesus is saying, but yet I'm changing lives. Yet I'm healing people. Yet I'm seeing conversions. And yet I am turning this world upside down and I'm here to make all things new. And I'm doing all of that without any of the tools the world says you need to have to lead a movement. I have no wealth. I don't have the media in my back pocket. I have no platform. I don't have the right name. I don't have the right last name. I don't have the right connections. I don't have any wealth. I don't even have a home. I have to constantly move so I can stay. You know why he had to keep moving? He was trying to stay alive long enough to get a little bit of teaching done before he got killed. Study the Gospels. He had to constantly be secretive about his movements because people were trying to kill him. How did they betray him? Judas eventually had to tell the people that wanted to kill him how his movement pattern worked so they could find him. He's saying, are you sure you want that? You want to change the world? Yes, I want to change the world. You want to see lives transformed? Yes, I want to see lives transformed. You want to be part of a movement that will change history? Yes, I do. They were aligned on that. He said, then you have to follow the way of the suffering king. And you have to be willing to forego your appetite. And you have to be willing to not receive for your reward everything the world offers you in this kingdom. Because this kingdom doesn't guarantee you wealth, comfort, status, relationships, all those other kinds of things. Because that kingdom doesn't consist of those things. He wanted to make sure this individual didn't just understand the grand mission that he understood the cost. Are you willing? Are you willing to pay that kind of a cost to follow Jesus? Are you willing to adopt a kingdom mentality? Are you following a cause because you need something to make you feel good? Or have you entered a kingdom? And has that kingdom transformed your life? And do you exist to boldly proclaim and join Jesus in the mission? It's not just about following a set of principles. It's about spreading a message of the truth of the kingdom of God. I've got to move on. Number two. Interesting. I'll tie up the first one by saying this. Interestingly enough, we're not told the outcome of what happened with the first guy. The impression of the text is that he didn't follow. We don't know. Did he answer? Don't know. The parable is left in a suspended state. Did he tighten his belt, set his face like a flint, and step in line? Or was he stunned by the price? Did he shrink back on the side in shock while the others passed? Because what Jesus was saying is, I don't offer you this set of things, but what I do offer you is peace. I offer you character. I offer you continual growth. I offer you meaning in life. I offer you an identity that is durable. I offer you courage, and I offer you the presence of God. Real things that will last forever. Number two, Jesus accepts no authority higher than his own. Verses 59 and 60, this is the second guy. Jesus gets a lot of bad PR for this particular exchange. Jesus says, come follow me. And the guy says, I want to, and I will, but first. I want to follow you, Jesus, but first I, let me go bury my father, and then I'll, come, then I'll come back. I will, and I'll be right back, is what the first guy is saying. And a lot of people, especially us modern, those of us who are modern Western readers, 
read this story, and it looks like on the surface that what's going on here is there is a young man grieving the death of his father, and Jesus asks him to follow him, and he asks for permission to go to the funeral, and Jesus says, no, you got to come with me. That is not at all what's going on here. I have to help us understand this is not what was going on in the Palestinian culture of the time. First of all, the law dictated that if your father was dead or near to death, you were not allowed to even be out where you'd be talking to Jesus. You needed to remain by the bedside. Okay, so his father did not in fact die. What was typical in the Palestinian culture was that your number one allegiance in life was to your father. And while your father was still living, you are not at liberty to be able to just disconnect from your father and go off on your own adventure. The number one priority for you was to serve your father until they passed away, oversee their burial, and then at that point you would be released to be able to choose what you wanted to do. In fact, modern Middle Eastern Christians who study in seminaries turn white-faced when they study these passages. I was reading the the notes of Ibn al-Sayed, who is a professor in the Middle East, and says, you should see my students, my Middle Eastern students whose face just turn white when they study the real implications of this passage, because all of them see how hard it is. Because in that culture, what he was asking this man to do was to say, I have to become your new number one loyalty, and no relationship, even that to your earthly father, can come before me. What he's saying is you cannot know the almighty if anything else is almighty. You cannot know the absolute unless anything else is absolute. And this was very, very, very hard and shocking. He's not denying an individual permission to go home and, and have a funeral, what he's saying is the urgency of the kingdom. You can't come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, but first, I have to do this other practical thing. And what's really, what we really see here is this. Many of us say to Jesus in so many places in life, I'm going to follow you until it doesn't look practical, and in that moment, obviously, you'll give me an exception. Obviously, you, would ne- you want me to follow you. You want me to be faithful. You want me to enter your kingdom and live your kingdom power. And I will 90% of that time. But then there's that 10% of the time where Jesus, not only is it not convenient, but it doesn't look very practical. And certainly in that 10% of the time, I will come back and follow you. But first, I have to do this or I have to do that or I have to see to this responsibility. This expectation my culture has on me. This expectation my employer has on me. This expectation my fiance has on me. I'm going to follow you, but first, and then I'll come back. And what Jesus is saying, that does not cut it in the kingdom of God. Because what happens is if you say that to a king, that person really isn't your king. The real king, the real authority in your life is that one relationship you don't want to jeopardize for the sake of the almighty king. Because what this guy is really saying is this, Jesus, I will follow you at such time I can be sure it will not alienate me from my father. Because if I say yes to you, Jesus, I'm really saying no to my community expectations for my father, and my father will probably disown me. My family will never talk to me again. And I, I want to follow you, but only at a point that it guarantees none of my existing relationships will be alienated as a result. I know people sitting in this room who have been faced with the very same choice in their lives. Not everybody has the benefit of having a mother or a father or a family member that cheers them on and affirms when they make a decision to follow Jesus. I know people in this room who when they chose to follow Jesus in their adult years had to confess to their parents that they were 100% Christian, that Jesus is the only way, and they were physically beaten as a result of it. It, to this day, has caused some of you disruptions in your family because you've chosen to follow Jesus with your whole heart. And that's hard. And it almost seems uncallous, but what Jesus is saying is this, I cannot do for you what I promised to do for you if anything else is king. 
if anything else is supreme, if anything else is absolute. And what you don't understand is what you get out of the kingdom. What he's saying is, I promise you joy. I promise you continual growth. I promise you peace. I promise you eternal life. I promise you salvation. I promise you continual growth and love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and mercy and self-control. I promise you all of those things. I promise you character. I promise you purpose and meaning and identity that is durable, that whether life gives you success or failure, it won't derail you. I promise you a purpose in life that says, I have something about me that works and it is meaning and it makes a difference. And he offers you all of that and you say, oh, but look at what I'm giving up look at what i have to give up to get all that and jesus says if those other things are more important then those other things are really your savior those are the things you need to serve then whatever those relationships are i would like to tell you friend that you can find this way of serving jesus and entering his kingdom that will never bring you into any kind of tension with the kingdom of the world but that's just not true the reality is the moment you step into his kingdom it immediately puts you at tension and at odds with the tension in the kingdom of the world And if you're not experiencing any of that tension, I wonder how close you've really adhered yourself to this kingdom. Because that kingdom will constantly bring you into tension with the kingdom of the world. Will constantly put you at tension in relationships. Will constantly put you at odds with the values and the ethics and the conversations and the politics and the everything else that goes with the world if you enter the kingdom of God. But look at what you get in the kingdom of God. Look at what you get in him. See what this world, no matter how much you adhere to it, can never save you. It can never give you eternal life. It can never give you confidence to face death. It can never give you a meaning and a purpose and identity that will not change that is constant like we sang this morning. You're constant even in everything else. The world can never give you that. Many of us will never have to make as extreme of a decision as some of you have or as this individual did. Do I follow Jesus and risk alienating my family? I have some people say about water baptism to me. They'll say, I would like to be baptized in water, but I was baptized at a young age Catholic. And if I do, it sends a message to my family who is still Catholic and they, it will cause tension there. And so they're trying to figure out some way. And on the one hand, you don't want to just say, well, forget how they feel. Just do. You know, and that sounds so calloused and so hard. But friend, who is your king? Who is your savior? Are you just following to get some of the ethical advantages or because it seems like a great cause or it lets you sleep better at night or have you entered a kingdom and is he your king? You see, this this guy didn't understand how great the kingdom of God was. He didn't want to risk alienating any relationship to move into the kingdom of God. And the third person, as I close, divided loyalties are catastrophically disruptive to the work of God's kingdom. Divided loyalties are catastrophically disruptive to the work of God's kingdom. Here's the third would-be follower. He gets bad PR for this too, does Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you, but I have a condition. Second one says, I want to follow you too, but I have a condition. And they're similar. First guy says, I'll follow you, but after I make sure it won't alienate me from my father. Second guy says, I'll follow follow you, but I want to go say goodbye to my family. And there's a lot that I could talk about, about that Greek phrase, apotasos, which is, Translated in one way, uh, saying goodbye, and the other way, to take leave of. It's probably actually the second definition. What he's really saying is, I need to go take leave of my family, which in the Middle East meant this. Before you go off on an adventure, you ask permission first. The better way, eight out of the ten guys that I read, guys and gals that I read, who really studied this passage and you know, have origins in the Middle East, say, what he's really asking is, Jesus, I would love to follow you, and I plan to. I just need to get permission from my parents first. And what they also say is that every Palestinian who heard heard Jesus telling this parable knew that that person who asked Jesus this question also knew that his parents would say, no way. 
So it was giving him a little bit of an out. Publicly, he could say, I'll follow you wherever I go as long as I get permission. I know they're never going to get permission. Mom and Dad, can I go follow Jesus? No. Okay. And then he could cry big crocodile tears. Jesus, I would follow you, but they won't let me. So if you want to push it the whole way down that trail, you can. But we can even step back a layer and look at this parable that Jesus answered because he doesn't really dive into that. What Jesus says is he uses an illustration that would have been familiar to that agricultural community. He says, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And it's a pretty basic text. On the one hand, we can take it, and it's correct to say, well, that means that you can't follow Jesus and also be looking over your shoulder and thinking, but look at all that I've left behind. Look at that relationship I used to have. Look at those hobbies and habits that I used to have. Look at that type of social life I used to enjoy. And, and yeah, you're going to have trouble. Palestinian farming was a little bit different than the way that I grew up learning how to garden. The Palestinian plow is actually very light. It's not very heavy. It could be operated with one hand, usually the left hand. And so they would have understood what he's talking about is with your left hand, if you're plowing a field back in their day using a Palestinian design plow, with your left hand, you did several things. You steered the plow to make sure that, you know, this ground you cut, the, the ditch you cut in the ground was called a furrow. And so you're making sure that furrow is straight. If you don't cut it straight, it's going to impact the drainage. And every line you cut before it and after it will be sent off in the calculation. So everything you're doing in this row has an impact on what you just did and what you're about to do. Okay, so it has to be done in harmony with pre-existing work and future work. Second thing they're doing with that plow is they're lifting. They're, they're, you use your hand to make sure it was, it was plowing to the right depth. So you either put pressure on it to make sure that plow cut down in deeper, or you'd lift it up if it was cutting too deep so you'd have an accurate trench the whole way around your field. Um, so, you know, you're, and then the third thing you're doing is you're lifting it up over rocks. If it gets stuck in something, you don't want the oxen on the front to pull it too hard over the rock. You could break the plow. So with your left hand, you're doing those three things. With your right hand, you had a two-foot long, or I'm sorry, a two-meter long, two-yard long, six feet, two-yard long goad. Long stick with a sharp pointy thing on the end. And that was your nice device for making sure that the oxen were walking straight. And if they were moving in the wrong direction, you'd poke them with that stick and they'd self-correct. So as you're plowing the field, he says, you need to have both hands working and both eyes going back and forth between the oxen and the plow and the oxen and the plow. And you're making sure, he says, if you're not completely focused on the work at hand, a disaster, a disruption is going to occur. You're either going to plow a crooked line which is going to mess up your current work. You're going to plow into a previous furrow and mess up the drainage of the whole field for work that you or somebody else did earlier. Or you're going to get so far askew that the next, the next five or six rows that you're plowing are going to have to be adjusted. It's like mowing your yard. If you cut one lane the wrong way, everything you did before doesn't look as pretty, or everything you did afterwards has to compensate for it. Or if you're a person that likes the nice lines when you vacuum, right? You get off on one line, it affects everything you did and you're about to do. Here's what I think Jesus is saying to us. If you're going to make things matter in the kingdom of God, you've got to understand when we follow Jesus, we go to work in the kingdom. We don't just follow man, we go to work. We go to work spreading the message of the kingdom of God. We go to work being and making disciples. And you and I have to understand that we're not plowing fields, we're reaching people. And have you ever had an experience where you've been trying to plow into the soil of a friend or a family member's heart for weeks or months or even years? And then some nimwit Christian comes along and in one conversation, in one church service, in one quick interaction, in one post on social media, takes a plow and totally undoes everything you've been working on? Have you ever had that happen? I know I've had it happen. 
people that I'm trying to reach out to for Jesus and I'm leading them along and leading them and leading along and someone else with a whole different approach, probably well-intentioned, just zooms in and says something really harsh, really extreme, really inaccurate. And this person's whole opinion of Christians and Christianity is set back light years. What Jesus is telling you and me is this. If you are the type of person who can't fully focus on the work of the kingdom, if you have constant divided loyalties, if you're constantly wishy-washy in your faith, if you're constantly looking back over your shoulder and trying to keep one foot in the way you used to be and then another eye on your assignment out front, you are going to be a chronic disruptor in the kingdom of God because not only are you not going to be focused on your task at hand, you're going to be making more work for yourself and others down the road and you're going to ruin work that's previously been done in the kingdom because of your lack of attention. So these are harsh statements. And I want you to understand that what Jesus is saying is simply this. He's not telling no to any of these guys. He didn't tell any of them you can't join. But what he did say is stop and think. Think about what it costs and are you ready for that. Think about how every other relationship in your life will have to adjust in light of this new relationship. Think about the type of uh, disruption it will be to your work in the kingdom if you are entering the kingdom and still reluctantly thinking about the life that you left behind. The only reason you would be doing that, the only reason you would be adding conditions is if you don't understand what you're getting. Listen, when a good deal comes across my desk, I don't start adding conditions. I sign. Recently, I heard a presentation from a, a lawyer who has, a, who has his Juris Doctorate, and he also has his Doctorate in Theology. He's been working with our denomination, the Assemblies of God, for decades. He gave a great presentation. He has this turnkey program that you can download 32 policies that every church should have in place about everything from who can use what bathrooms, regardless of what gender they are, to who you can lease your facility out without getting sued to, to how you should handle cash on a Sunday morning. He says churches are terrible on these things. I've written them from the perspective of the lawyer. There's 32 of them that will keep you safe and protected. You can download them all for $97, put your logo on them, and they'll work. I wasn't about to add conditions. I wasn't about to negotiate for a better deal. I knew how much work and how many hours in my life and our new administrative board's lives would be spared if we said yes to that deal. And I said yes. I didn't say, you know what? Could you just extend that deal for two more weeks? You know what? $97. I realize that's probably about eight or $9,000 worth of work, but could you give it to us for eighty-five? I said, how quick can you take my money? <laughs> how quick can I sign up? You understand the reason why so many of us hesitate is we don't understand how good the deal is. We have no idea, and that's what Jesus is making them slow down. Understand what you're really getting in the kingdom. Understand what really comes along with being part of this. And so really where the rubber meets the road, can our worship team return, is this. Maybe you're in a place that, I don't know where you're at in following Jesus, I really don't. Jesus does, and I hope you and Jesus agree on where you're at in following him. But the point of this whole parable is that to be fit in the kingdom of God, all he's looking for is willingness. Are you willing and will you enter his kingdom? Are you willing to do that and will you? Will you do it right away? Will you do it regardless of how it impacts existing relationships and ethics? Will you go to work in his kingdom? Will you accept all of the benefits that come along with being part of his kingdom when the king power of the outside world comes and invades your life? It completely transforms you, completely changes you. You may be in a place this morning where you say, I want to follow Jesus, but for me to advance in my career, I'm going to have to keep looking the other way and some ethical things at work. So I don't know if I can really follow him. Maybe I can follow him quietly, 
but I certainly can't, I certainly can't put my career at risk. I would say, stop and think, are you ready? Are you really ready for the kind of life that comes along with following Jesus? You might say, I want to follow Jesus, but if I really sold out, some of my friendships won't be as warm as they are right now. And if I really became as bold as I know I want to be and as I should be and as I can be, it's going to cost me, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty likely it's going to cost me some intimacy in some of the friendships, some of the circles that I enjoy, some of the leisure time activities I get involved with, some of the ways that I think, some of the choices that I make. I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to go that far. That's kind of extreme. You might say, I want to follow you, but I'm in a relationship. And I'm not sure if my current relationship fits the standards of the kingdom of God. I'm not sure if my relationship fits the standards of somebody I should marry or be married to. I'm not sure if it fits the standards of sexuality. I'm not sure it it fits the standards of of how we're living together or how we're, I'm not sure my existing relationships fit into the kingdom of God. So I want to follow Jesus, but maybe he'll make an exception in this particular matter. I want to invite you once again to look deep into the kingdom of God. And I want you to see the beauty of who Jesus is. I want you to see the uniqueness of what he offers to all of us. I want you to also see the cost of discipleship. I want you to understand what is not included and what is included. What's not included is guarantees of wealth, health, status, and and comfort. What is included is life, peace, joy, eternal life, freedom, meaning, purpose, identity, continual growth, and the presence of God. And if you've ever tasted of that, even for a few moments, it far exceedingly outweighs everything else the earth can ever offer. He gives you things that are eternal. He only gives things that are eternal. So what does Jesus really want? He wants followers who have counted the cost, followers who are ready to follow him at once, and followers who will follow him with an undivided heart. Is that you this morning? Are you ready? Let's go to him right now. Let's pray. Can you bow your head, close your eyes? Are you ready to follow Jesus this morning? I don't know where you are in relationship to Jesus, but he does and you do. And I hope if I've done my job appropriately this morning that I've let the words of Jesus to these three men jump off the page and jump into your heart today. Challenging message, but let's just be clear on the front end. Our goal at Echo is not to talk about how many or how much. We want to offer you authentic and sincere and genuine pathways into the presence and right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I hope I've let him speak for himself to you this morning. I hope you're ready to say yes to Jesus today. But if you're not, I'm not going to pressure you into it because when you make that decision, I want it to be done rationally, (laughs) clearly, with your full focus and your full meaning behind it. But are you really ready to commit your life to him today? If so, then I'm going to lead you in that prayer of commitment. It's an unconditional prayer. We don't bring our conditions to Jesus. He's already said, this is how it works. It's a prayer that goes like this. It's as simple as ABC. You admit, you believe, you choose. If you're ready to enter his kingdom, to cross that border without looking back, join me in this prayer. Just pray, dear Jesus, I admit that I've fallen short of the standard you set. I admit to being a sinner. I admit to living life by what feels best to me. I am ready to step off the throne of my life. And let you take the place as my king. I'm ready to stop being my own king. 
because I recognize your kingship so much more superior than mine. Jesus, I believe in you. You're God's son. You've lived the life I should have lived. You died the death on the cross. I deserve to die. You did that in my place. And I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive today. So today I choose you to be my king. I choose you to be my Lord. I choose you to be my savior. And I receive salvation. I receive forgiveness. I receive relationship. And I receive everything that comes along to the citizens in heaven. And I thank you that I'm not just simply a citizen. I am a son or I'm a daughter. I'm a co-heir with you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Amen.